Over a period of 20 years, the Long Island serial killer is suspected of murdering up to 16 people and dumping their bodies along the Ocean Parkway in Long Island. These crimes have never been solved, and as a result, the families of these victims have never seen justice. Some of these victims have never even been identified. This is Ossuary, and we're investigating the Long Island serial killer. Hello. Hello. Hi, everyone. Happy week of whatever day this is now because time is a construct in quarantine life here. <laughs> time does not exist. Not right. anymore. It means nothing at all, but it is almost officially the start of summer. And yeah. that is exciting. So, guys, we just wanted to do a side note before we start our main discussion tonight. We um, got a, a private message on Instagram from someone called Tony Ann. And she just wanted to um, clear something up for us. When we were discussing the serial killer of Long Island, Joel Rifkin, and one of his uh, victims, Mary Ellen. So it has been described in the media that all of his victims were sex workers. However, Tony Ann actually was able to explain to us that this wasn't the case with Mary Ellen. She was not a sex worker, although she was portrayed that way in the media. Mm-hmm. So, And we are going to go to a deep dive of Joel Rivkin and the victims um, to ensure we honor them in a mini-sode that's coming up. But we just wanted to take a moment to clear up now, before we get into it, that Mary Ellen was not a sex worker. Um, and thank you so much, Tony Ann, for um, sending us that message as well. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it's so important for us to sort of um, have follow-ups like these. We absolutely love hearing from you guys and any information is is wonderful, obviously. Um, but, you know, as a victim-oriented podcast, we think that it's really, really important to prioritize the lives of, of victims um, and so we're really happy to be able to sort of honor Mary Ellen's life in that way. And yeah, so more soon on our upcoming mini-sode on Joel Rifkin. Yeah, so any information you guys have, any clarifications that we should make, please feel free to shoot us a DM, shoot us an email, whatever other form of contact. If you want to just send out psychic vibes, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, we will be open and receiving those psychic vibes. <laughs> um, cool. cool. I guess let's uh, get into it. Yeah, let's get into it. So last episode, we discussed other serial killers on Long Island and began delving into the long list of suspects of the list case. In this episode, we're going to cover Joseph Brewer, Shannon's client the night that she disappeared, Peter Hackett, who was a neighbor of Brewer's who seemed to be more involved in Shannon's disappearance than he first let on, and James Bissett, a local Long Islander whose family just happened to be a major supplier of burlap bags in the area. So guys, you might remember the bodies were wrapped in burlap at Gilgo. Yeah, so um, we have a lot to cover and it's it's going to be a wild yeah, ride. ride. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we're going to start with Joseph Brewer. And I think it's important for us to start there because that's really what starts off this investigation. So the first time that we mentioned Joe Brewer was in our very first episode. He was one of the last few individuals to see Shannon Gilbert alive. And the reason that he's included in this list of suspects is that, you know, simply put, he was there and his story doesn't really add up. To be clear, we are not accusing any of these individuals of murder, simply recounting their potential involvement and consideration as persons of interest and or suspects, something which has been made public by the authorities and journalists alike. So to start with Joseph Brewer, I want to quote an article from Vice by Michael E. Hayden, because I think this really encapsulates our interest in Brewer. It reads, 
Something in Joe Brewer's house made Shannon Gilbert think that she was going to die. Let's think about that for a second. In the time spent in Brewer's house, three hours to be exact, something had caused Shannon to react the way she did, which ultimately led to the discovery of the Gilgo Four and the Long Island serial killer. Joe Brewer is not your typical resident of Oak Beach. He was a party boy, a bachelor, and as described by Robert Coker in his book Lost Girls, he was an unctuous, cloying, and classless guy. Joe Brewer moved to Oak Beach and took up residence at one of his mother's properties, a two-story Cape house. So this guy was oily. Like, that's how yeah. he's described. Yeah. I'm literally just, like, picturing this guy in my head with, like, a neck beard, covered in grease, and wearing, like, a dirty t-shirt with five-day-old sweat patches, right? That's actually not a wrong description. That is exactly how he was described when Alex Diaz and Michael Pack came back to look for Shannon. Yeah, he's wearing, like, an unclean white t-shirt. Exactly. Who is also living at his mother's house. Yes. Mm. Throw that one out there too. Right, exactly. So Brewer was unemployed for years before having moved to Oak Beach, um, even though he did have a brief stint on Wall Street. And the reason that he was able to move into his mother's property is because Brewer's family owned a lot of real estate throughout Long Island, from commercial to residential. And that included the Cape home, which would be the starting point of the Lisk investigation. The night that Shannon went missing, Michael Pack, Shannon's driver, described Brewer's home as being similar to that of a hoarder. Not an inch of floor was visible and half-eaten food was strewn about. This was the life that Brewer led in Oak Beach, behind closed doors. One he considered to be a party pit for him and his friends with women hired to entertain, and a place where you could supposedly, quote, do whatever it is that you wanted to do, end quote. Michael Pack remembered the night that Shannon went missing. Brewer did not seem agitated or angry when he first came out to ask Michael to get Shannon out because, remember, Shannon had started acting erratically or just scared in Brewer's home, and he actually came outside to get Michael to get her out. Mm-hmm. And to Michael Pack, this seemed like, you know, this was the attitude of a guy who had done this before, someone who was well-versed in dealing with sex workers and- Or at least, you know, dealing with someone who, like, during the course of their escort work that night, like, may have indulged in drugs mm-hmm. and, like, may mm-hmm. have either taken too much or had an adverse reaction and then figured, okay, well, this just is going a different direction and I'll just, like, stay calm and see if her driver will, like, make sure this is no longer my problem. Right. I, I think it's really interesting how calm he was because it yeah. definitely just shows that, you know, he's well-versed in sort of dealing with these situations, especially at how late it was. So to sort of recap what happened that night, um, and this is all available in our first episode. If you haven't listened to it, you totally should. Um, but the timeline of Shannon's date with Brewer goes as such. Shannon Gilbert and Michael Pack arrive at Brewer's house around 2 a.m. Michael sees Brewer open the gate to his home and let them in. 20 minutes later, Brewer and Shannon leave for what Michael Pack assumes is a drug run. Remember, Michael was waiting outside in his car to drive Shannon home at the end of the night. Their having left the house 20 minutes later was fully cleared with Michael, so he knew you know, that they were going. This was not a surprise to him. When they come back, Shannon calls Michael and asks him to go to CVS for her. She wants him to pick up a couple of items, specifically baby oil, KY jelly, and playing cards. So these were not uncommon products for Shannon to use um, during a date because they would actually lengthen the time of the date so she could be paid for the full two hours or even longer. Um, Michael, however, says no to the CVS run. 
he doesn't want to do it. And Shannon gets pretty upset. She actually says that she's going to find her own way home. But Michael, knowing Shannon, stays. So just before 5 a.m., that's almost three hours later, Brewer steps outside to ask Pac to get Shannon out and take her home. And Michael remembers this because not only was this the start of a crazy sort of escalation into this investigation, but also this was the third hour of what was only supposed to be a two-hour date. So I think it's really important for us to sort of let that sink in. Yeah, I mean, I think also part of that is, you know, if Michael didn't go to CVS to get these items, these are items that are specifically designed to prolong the date. It's actually really interesting because Brewer says that him and Shannon never had sex. Yeah. And I think that we should really sort of think about, you know, if they weren't doing what Shannon was essentially paid to to be there to do, then what was going on? So before we move on to possible connections to the Long Island serial killer, I want to point out a few things. First, Brewer is no stranger to sex workers. In fact, he would tell Robert Coker that, you know, he didn't need to pay women for sex, but he would often hire them for his sex parties. Okay, but the kinds of guys that say that they don't need to hire women for sex are the kinds of guys that need to hire women for sex. Yeah, exactly. This boasting about his womanizing sounds very, very much like he's, you know, trying to talk himself. Yeah, exactly, exactly, compensating. Um, Second thing is that Brewer is the son of a family that owns a lot of real estate throughout Long Island. So this not only gave him access to the Oak Beach gated community where he lived in his mother's property, but also theoretically gave him access to a number of other properties throughout Long Island. And this is something that we've talked about before. You know, I know that Emma has brought it up a lot of times is that Mm -hmm. these killings were done in a space that, you know, whoever did this needed privacy. They, They needed to make sure that they weren't going to be disturbed and what better way to to find privacy than to be able to have access to a number of different properties along the island? Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. That's really, really suspicious. So lastly, I want to sort of talk about the fact that in our last episode, we covered James Burke, the former police chief of Suffolk County. And he was both wildly corrupt, convicted of assault, and he was also accused of allegedly having attended sex parties with sex workers present in Oak Beach. So I don't know about you guys, but, you know, obviously I cannot speak for an entire community. I think there's something like 72 homes there. Mm -hmm. But the only person that I know that has been throwing these sort of sex parties and hiring sex workers, it's Joseph Brewer. I mean, he fits the bill. So even if he doesn't have something to do with it, there's that connection there. You know, something doesn't quite add up. Mm -hmm. So now I want to get into what happened that night between Shannon and Brewer. Obviously, we don't know much because Brewer has been pretty vague, but something had to have happened to freak Shannon out so much that she would run down the street screaming, they are trying to kill me. So after Brewer comes out to get Michael Pack, Michael Pack enters Brewer's house to find Shannon scared but not panicking, according to Colker. While Pac was trying to assess the situation and be gentle with Shannon, trying to get her to calmly leave, because, you know, he's trying to de-escalate the situation, Pac recounts that Brewer actually became super impatient and tried to subdue Shannon by approaching her from the back. And when he went to put his arms around the young woman, it caused her to scream and start panicking, which is fair. I mean, she was surprised. Yeah. And he yeah. essentially, in, in a way, presented like he was assaulting her. 
Well, it's also like if you're in a heightened state of anxiety and mm-hmm. somebody comes at you from a blind spot, mm-hmm. like that's certainly not going to help. Yeah. I also think that it's interesting, you know, uh, you know, if someone is panicking and is scared and you're trying to get them out of your house for mm-hmm. some reason, my first thought would not be to try and subdue them physically. Um So supposedly at that point, once Shannon starts screaming and panicking, Brewer became super exasperated and left the room going upstairs. The next moment that Brewer enters the scene is when Michael himself, becoming exasperated, leaves the residence and sees Brewer on the upstairs balcony, turning around to go back inside. Moments later, Shannon runs out of the house in a frenzy. So, I mean, it definitely sounds like there was another person in the house that we're unaware of and that Pac didn't see, thus why she was saying they're trying to kill me, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I think that that's a good thing to point out and we'll sort of get into that in a little bit, uh, but it's definitely something to keep in mind. Yeah. When questioned about what happened, both by Alex Diaz, Shannon's boyfriend, the next day after she went missing, and by the police later on and Robert Colker in an interview, Brewer couldn't really seem to come up with an answer about what happened. Doesn't look great. No, I think that, you know, it's it doesn't make much sense. Uh, he was very vague all the time. And he says things along the lines of, look, man, she came to my house. We were having a conversation. All of a sudden, I felt uncomfortable with the conversation. The vague answers that he gave to Alex Diaz gave Diaz a bad feeling. He didn't really believe that Brewer didn't know or couldn't say what had happened. And, you know, I think that that's fair if you're talking to someone the next day after, like, a kind of traumatic situation. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't just forget everything that happened if someone ran screaming from my house saying that they're going to kill me. Like, that is something that I would replay in my mind over and over again and at least have a sense of what had happened. Yeah. And like I said earlier, you know, Brewer says that they didn't have sex, but if that was the case, then what were they doing? For three hours when Shannon didn't have any of her, you know, usual products to sort of lengthen the date out. Yeah. Yeah, Like to me, it sounds like number one with the vague answers and number two saying they didn't have sex. It sounds like he's definitely trying to distance himself from Shannon, which Mm -hmm. is I mean, in a lot of the time, it's an indication of guilt because they're trying to make themselves look like less of the perpetrator, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, isn't it interesting that he says they were having a conversation, then all of a sudden he felt uncomfortable with the conversation, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and in addition to that, his vagueness makes him appear that he's either covering for someone else or maybe himself, right? Yeah, I think definitely, um, you know, obviously we can't know what the conversation was between Brewer and Shannon, but I think his lack of ability to recall it for some reason or, you know, just not wanting to implicate himself is obvious in the fact that he's so vague. And I think it's something that we should sort of keep on the forefront because, you know, in any investigation when there's not a whole truth being said, it just sort of points to some aspect of guilt. Um, So in Joe Brewer's interview with Robert Kolker, which lasted only 30 minutes, according to Lost Girls, Brewer seemed a little bit erratic. At first, he asked for money for the interview. When Kolker refused, saying that he didn't pay people for interviews, Brewer kept talking. He talked himself up as being this great guy who would never kill a mammal, except he contradicted himself, maybe a mouse. He supposedly only answered to one entity referring to God, yet he wasn't religious and maybe actually just believed that everything happened for a reason. And it just seemed like Brewer constantly contradicted himself. And yet he insists that he knows something big. 
He keeps saying it. He knows something big and he can't say it, but once it comes out, it's gonna blow the roof off of this case. Which is really, really strange, um, in my opinion, because he won't elaborate as to what. Like, why wouldn't you share that? Yeah. It seems like Brewer lies sometimes, Mm -hmm. and it's both to talk himself up, and it's also potentially to not incriminate himself. So I think we have these two potential facets of his personality, which is like the brewer that has nothing to do with the case. But at the same time, he knows something that would blow it wide open. But that same thing is not at all incriminating to him. Or he knows nothing and has nothing to do with it and just wants just to be a part of it wants attention yeah um which honestly from what we've learned about who he is as a human all Brewer does say is that if we were to hear the 911 call that shannon made the one that lasted for nearly 24 minutes 24 minutes that's a very long time we would know the truth this guy sounds like a fucking dick. I'm literally waving <laughs> all of my red flags right now. Like, it's never, ever, ever a good sign when someone just keeps changing their story, no? Mm-hmm. No, it's it's really not. I mean, I think that not only does it make someone, you know, if they do know information, it makes them, like, not a credible witness at all. Um, and we all know that witness testimonies can be very shady and notoriously unreliable. Exactly, very unreliable. Um, but, you know, at the same time, that shadiness could also implicate like it it makes me seem like he has something to do with it he's just such an oily character in this (laughs) slippery honestly if someone told me that they were writing him in as like a red herring in a murder mystery i would be like that's a great character you think he did it the whole time and he didn't like it's just like i feel like it's very complex obviously you know human beings are complex nothing is just as straightforward as we want it to be and again we've said it so many times with this case there's just constant coincidence and nuance and like complexity that just doesn't add up that it just doesn't make any sense Mm -hmm. so i want to point something else out about brewer shannon ran out of brewer's house screaming they are trying to kill me and you know emma brought this up before She was saying they, not he, but they. So one reason that Shannon might have been saying they is that, you know, she was in a drug-induced frenzy. She was confused and she thought that it was Joe Brewer and Michael Pack who were trying to hurt her. That's not completely unfounded. You know, she could have become paranoid. But the fact of the matter is, you know, I think that Brewer has said with what seems like certainty that she didn't have a bad reaction to drugs. There's another theory, though. On April 9th, 2011, the New York Post ran an article that alleged a second man had been at the Brewer residence that night. This nameless individual was supposedly a 48-year-old drifter with a penchant for strippers. That's a quote from the article. The allegation of the drifter was then supposedly corroborated by his own publication of a book titled Confessions of the Oak Beach Drifter, published in 2012. The author is named only W. In his book, W refers to himself as Vito Sarfati, though this is likely a fictionalized name. W refers to his hard life from Queens to Long Island, talking about drugs, violence, and confessing to a number of crimes from burglary to rape, but not the sequential murder of women, obviously. W does write something that I think is really interesting, however, and it occurred near the home of Brewer. 
He writes that one particular night, he was awakened by a woman screaming, no, please stop, please don't do that, followed by what sounded like a loud smack. In his quote-unquote confession, W also writes about a main character named Damon Brooks who becomes violent with sex workers and sounds quite a bit like a fictionalized version of Joe Brewer. So it's also really important to note that according to Robert Coker, part of these so-called confessions by W are slightly fictionalized. So, you know, what can we take as real and what's fiction? Was this so-called drifter really there that night? Or is this someone who saw an opportunity to use this investigation as a way to sell his partly fictionalized autobiography under the guise of an anonymous drifter? There's another thing that I sort of want to point out is that he talks about his life from Queens to Long Island and... We've mentioned a number of times that there may or may not be a connection to Queens. Yeah. Queens is brought up a number of times. That's also where Natasha. Yeah. Yes. Natasha, as you go. Yeah. She left her home in Middle Village, I think it was. Yeah. 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 Um, so I just think that's an interesting thing to point out. So I, I think it's important for us to remain skeptical here because the so-called drifter became a theory once the case went from just a missing persons case to that of a serial killer that ended up intriguing a community. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a chance that this person just sort of saw an opportunity to make some money or sell his book. But there's also the fact that we don't know what happened that night. And we don't know what could have set Shannon off when she was with Brewer. Yeah. The only thing that Brewer seemed serious about in his interview with Robert Coker is that Shannon wasn't just having a bad reaction to drugs. Shannon really thought they, whoever they are, we're going to kill her, but we're just unclear on who that is. Furthermore, and possibly the eeriest break in the case, something which we'll talk more in depth about in a later episode, is the fact that authorities found a belt near or in one of the Gilgo dump sites. The belt in question bears the initials WH or backwards HW, and it seems a little too close to the drifter who refers to him as only W. That's insane. I remember actually reading about the this like confessions of a drifter. And I think that the thing that I had come across it was somebody had said that like maybe Joseph Brewer had actually written it to kind of like cast the the light away from himself. Mm -hmm. But that was also long before the belt showed up. So Mm -hmm. I think that that would kind of that would negate it if I mean, if there was any actual truth to that, or at least just the creepy coincidence. I I mean, I, again, like, I think that given sort of the psychology of Joseph Brewer um, and what we know about him of being this sort of like slippery eel of a character, it wouldn't be crazy. Like if someone told me that he had actually written that. But I also think that it's just so strange that we have someone who calls themselves W and then we find a belt that has the initials WH or HW in it. Yeah, that's creepy. So to sum up, what do we know about Brewer? Well, firstly, he's obviously an all-round greasy dude. (laughs) I think we can all agree on that. Um, He's also a trust fund kid and probably never really had that much responsibility because he's always had his family's financial safety net to fall back on, right? And he also seems super narcissistic and loves to talk about himself and possibly implicate himself in some situations while at the same time remaining very vague in other circumstances. Mm -hmm. So go figure. Um, so his family owns property, which may have given in the private quarters to dismember some of the bodies that we've discussed. And so I wonder, it's really interesting to think about, do you think that he 
possibly had a falling out with some of his family at some point. And maybe that happened to coincide with the time that the body stopped being dismembered and instead were dumped in burlap. I mean, I think anything's possible in this case. Um, I will say that, you know, he moved into his mother's house, the one that she was living in after everything happened. Um, and you know, he put the the house in Oak beach up for sale. Um, so I don't think that, you know, he like really had a falling out in that sense, but on the Mm -hmm. other hand, you know, he does have a daughter with someone who he never married and they never visited him at Oak beach. And I think that goes hand in hand with sort of this like bachelor party boy lifestyle. Yeah. Like the, the fact of the matter is he doesn't have a solid story, you know, there's holes everywhere. And, you know, in my opinion, when you have holes that big and you're that vague about what happened and a girl goes missing and then is found dead. There's something going on. There's something going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So next up, we're going to discuss Peter Hackett. He was a well-known member of the Oak Beach community with a history of odd behavior. So let's get one thing straight right off the bat. Peter Hackett is kind of an odd guy. His behavior is strange and suspect, to say the least, and a lot of it is rooted in these really braggadocious ways. What a great word. Thank you. I was very proud of it. That's wonderful. (laughs) So Peter Hackett and his family, Barbara, his wife, and their three children, moved to the community of Oak Beach back in 1990, when Peter was in his mid-30s and working full-time as an emergency services surgeon. Try saying that three times fast. And as we talked about, he was... um, one of the neighbors of Joe Brewer, his home is also just a stone's throw from Gus Coletti and Barbara Brennan, who our listeners may recall were the last people to see Shannon alive the night that she disappeared. Hackett wears a prosthetic left leg. And here's like the first weird story that we're going to get into, because we're going to talk about a lot of stories when we talk about Peter Hackett. Mm -hmm. So he's got this prosthetic leg. And the story that he gives behind how we got it is that it's a result of a really nasty accident when he was in medical school. Apparently, while he was assisting a driver on the Northern State Parkway, he claimed another car hit him and just continued driving. And he recovered in the hospital for over a year before he took on the prosthetic, which he wears all the time ever since then. Now, let's talk a little about the reason why we described Hackett as braggadocious, because that's honestly a great adjective for him. And I think that, quote, lying braggart would also hit the nail right on the head. During the 90s, Hackett served as head of the EMS for Suffolk County, and he oversaw the response to the TWA crash in 1996 over Montauk. When he resigned a year later, there was a swirl of arguments over whether or not Hackett had resigned due to, quote, policy differences, as he claimed, or due to his behavior as an, this is an exact quote, an erratic would-be hero who embellished his achievements and meddled with the volunteers' work while neglecting his job as an administrator. And that quote's from Robert Kolker's Lost Girls. But here are a couple of exaggerations that are exactly the reason why he got that savage description. So Hackett claimed just a couple of hours after the crash that the Coast Guard flew him over the wreckage where he swam through oil-slicked waters to resuscitate a body. The Coast Guard, in a less than, are you freaking kidding me, response, said that not only did this not happen, but it wouldn't have even been possible. So here's story number two. 
Hackett also relayed to colleagues that he'd once been looking for survivors of a roof collapse over in Bayshore, Long Island, while at the same exact time, witnesses were able to place him nowhere near there. Story number three. Prior to leaving this EMS position, Hackett was criticized for his forced assistance into a rescue of three men at MacArthur Airport when he lowered himself into a freezing water tank. Hackett claimed to have rappelled down into it, an obvious exaggeration because those who were literally present watched him climb the stairs down. The problem wasn't even just in his retelling of the story. The problem was that his involvement actually endangered the lives of the trapped men and actually caused injuries to them. He continues to deny all of this to this day. All of these stories of like Peter Hackett trying to save people and actually like endangering their lives, which is awful, mind you, but just a sidebar. He literally sounds so much like Tobias Fumke from Arrested Development. You know why Tobias lost his medical license? Because he tried to resuscitate a man that was just having a nap (laughs) (laughs) or something like that. I feel like I could see this happening. Also, it just sounds like he is the type of person that just wants to make himself sound better than he is. Mm -hmm. Like it's kind of like Joe Brewer. He's just like talking himself up in, in a different way. Yeah. So after departing that EMS position, Hackett took up a job as a director of emergency services over in Riverhead, but his job was short-lived as the appearance of a congenital heart problem forced his retirement as an EMT. So he got a lot of time on his hands. He starts acting like he's just constantly on call while he's in Oak Beach. He puts a red flashing light on his truck while he's driving around, and he keeps tabs on the police scanner. He did actually apparently perform minor medical procedures. He once reattached a neighbor's finger, and he did treat some chest pains and other members of Oak Beach. But he once again earned a reputation for telling tall tales about his doings. He claimed that the kitchen island in his home with his family doubled as an examination table for patients. And he scared a neighborhood kid who wound up getting caught smoking pot by telling him that he worked for the DEA. So, I mean, you know, exaggerating small things or telling a couple of tall tales to sound important, that doesn't make somebody super suspicious. That's Mm -hmm. just bragging. But a constant pattern of this behavior over years and years, especially in the face of obvious truths that contradict these lies, definitely shows a problematic streak. Yeah, like there are so many red flags all around this guy. He absolutely seems like he's drunk on power with all of that crazy behavior. And the lines between reality and lies seems to be blurred so much. It's hard to know what's even real and what we should actually take away from this. I mean, he clearly loves to be the center of attention. And I mean, like that doesn't necessarily make him a serial killer, like you were saying, Sarah, but at very least a giant douche. (laughs) It's problematic behavior. Like that's just, that's what it is. It's problematic behavior and it's problematic behavior that also happens to have put him not at the center of, but in the peripheral view of a giant unsolved series of serial killings. Yeah, right. And I mean, we should also wonder, are all of these tall tales that he's telling possibly just a ploy to distract us from everything else he's doing? And also, how old is he? Do you think it's viable to conclude that an elderly-ish man with a prosthetic leg could still overpower these women? So he was in his mid-30s and then the 90s or either 90s or 1990 when he moved to Oak Beach. So he's probably now, what, in his like 60s or so? About the prosthetic leg. I mean, this guy has had it uh, also for decades, which Mm -hmm. probably means that he's adapted to it. I also have a quote from, and I'm going to talk about um, 
this situation from which this quote arises, but uh, Alex Diaz met him. And Mm -hmm. when he met him, he was very careful to describe him as being able to lumber over with surprising speed. So about Alex Diaz, Sunday, May 3rd, 2011. Alex Diaz, Shannon's boyfriend at the time, ventures over to Oak Beach and chats with Brewer, hoping to get a better picture of what had happened, which Sydney just talked about. Mm -hmm. And he wound up actually attempting to make a report with the Suffolk County Police Department. As we know, the Suffolk County Police Department was incredibly stubborn in assisting, and this was no different. When Alex went back the next day with a photo of Shannon planning to knock on doors, he met a man outside of the Oak Beach gate who introduced himself as Peter Hackett. Hackett listened to Alex's tale of Shannon's disappearance, promising to assist him, claiming he had worked with the police previously and guaranteeing they would search the area. A few days later, Alex was back at Oak Beach with Michael Pack, and once again, Peter Hackett shows up. He takes copious notes on Shannon, her conditions, her medical history, the drugs she was known to take, and again, promises to keep an eye on things. And then he goes into this, it's a super short story, but it's very weird and like doesn't really seem to have anything to do with anything. And he tells these guys the story of like, how he was on a boat in the ocean and he was almost dead and he suddenly shot a flare gun at another boat that he saw and he got saved and he I guess is like trying to turn it into a parable about how he's like a survivor and he's driven to survive I don't know it was like two sentences in the Robert Colger book and I Mm -hmm. forgot about it and reread it and it's just very strange and it's again it's just like a tale of like look at these great feats that I can accomplish I will help Uh, you too yeah I mean you know someone could think that he was saying that as in like look at this thing that I survived so maybe she's maybe Shannon can do it too right in this situation with Alex Diaz coming to Oak Beach and he's meeting Peter Hackett and Peter Hackett is saying that he's going to take care of things. He's going to search the area. He's going to, he's taking all these notes. Like it, not only is it making him look and feel self-important, but like to what extent, you know, if, if Alex Diaz and Michael Pack are not getting support from the police department and they think that Peter Hackett is doing more in, work than he actually and, is. And that he's involved with the police right. department. This is a guy who's exactly. like giving them assurances that it's going to get looked into, yeah, that it's going to get taken care of when no one else is listening. Like, it's this kind of stuff that is both suspicious and also just really fucking sad. Like, what kind of person do you have to be to want to talk yourself up that much that you would actually encumber an investigation? And yeah, it's just strange. This is where it actually gets weird. Everything before this is like hors d'oeuvres this is the main meal of weirdness it's crazy i feel like that was the best way that i i don't know how to describe this (laughs) it's just strange and this is the point at which i feel like if you've like read anything about lisk and peter hackett if you've heard anything about janet and peter hackett or if you've this is the part i think that everybody uses to point to hackett's involvement in something bigger than what he's sharing so if you didn't think it was weird before you're gonna think it now so Two days after Shannon went missing and right when Alex went to Oak Beach, May 3rd, 2011, Hackett calls Mary Gilbert, Shannon's mom, to inform her that he had met Shannon. He stated he ran a home for wayward girls and that he'd taken Shannon in because she'd been incoherent. According to Hackett, she'd left the next day with a driver and he was simply wondering if Mary had seen her since. Now, Hackett denied these phone calls profusely, and he denied what he had apparently stated in the call. 
In a letter to CBS News's 48 Hours, Hackett stated, quote, when I heard the name Shannon Gilbert, she was already missing. I never met her. I never treated her and I never spoke with her. She was never in my home. When Mary later confronted him with a friend filming her on her cell phone, he continued to deny it. Mary Gilbert, firsthand, what happened? Did you ever see her? What did you hear? Hackett, I never saw her. I never met her. All this stuff about a rehab or something. I don't have a rehab. I don't do rehab. Mary, why would you say that to me? Hackett, I didn't. Eventually, cell phone records proved that Hackett was lying and that the phone call Mary had claimed existed had happened as she had claimed. In a second letter to 48 Hours, he did say that he had called and spoken to Mary, but that it was later in the week, and he still stood by his claim that he hadn't helped Shannon. That is so fucking creepy, right? Like, I also read with this that apparently the cell phone data not only showed that he was lying but also that he was in close proximity to Mary Gilbert's home in New Jersey when he made the call. So he was literally from all the way in Long Island to New Jersey calling Mary Gilbert and he apparently had used his wife's cell phone to make the call. So why the fuck was he there? So in the letter, he said, quote, at no time during any of my conversations with Shannon's friends or family did I suggest that I had ever met her or rendered medical care of any sort to her. When asked why he had kept changing his story by the 48 Hours correspondent Aaron Mortiarty, Hackett claimed, quote, because I couldn't remember my story. Seriously, a person gets a lot of phone calls, which honestly, not a great argument. No. No. I mean, (laughs) I, I think that, you know, there is a sense to the argument and a lot of um, people who are innocent will say like, well, you know, I don't remember what I was doing that day because it was just a regular day day. It was just another day. But when you actually did make a phone call to the mother of a girl who went missing in your neighborhood and that you that you claimed involvement with. Yeah, exactly. Like you're you've inserted yourself into this investigation in one way or another. I'm sorry. I do not buy that. That's just something that would slip your mind. Well, it goes back to what you were saying about Joe Brewer's story having mm-hmm. holes. You know, if this is a big night for mm-hmm. Joe Brewer, this is a big thing for mm-hmm. Peter Hackett. This is involving someone who by discovery of her body has opened a giant case of an unsolved serial killing in maybe Mm -hmm. in your neighborhood, at Mm -hmm. least in the vicinity of your home. Mm -hmm. And considering just how much attention this case has garnered, it's very hard to believe you wouldn't remember specifics. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. So when 48 Hours covered Shannon's story, the former chief of detectives, Dominic Verone, stated that Hackett wasn't a person of interest. More importantly, Verone attempted to discount the possibility of Hackett making the claim of running a wayward home or even Hackett claiming to Mary that he'd seen Shannon. He said, I don't believe he said that. And I would be amazed as to why that wasn't brought to our attention. Why weren't they screaming that and clamoring that? It was reported, though. It was brought to their attention. And this circles back to what Sydney had discussed way back in our first episode about the mess that was the missing persons report. When Mary tried to file the report in Suffolk County, she'd been bounced back to New Jersey, where Shannon lived. And somewhere in the weird disconnect there, the information about Hackett just wasn't followed up on by Suffolk County. But it was in the report. That's super interesting. Yeah. So the Gilbert family wound up taking things into their own hands, and they filed a wrongful death suit against Dr. Hackett. On November 15th, 2012, Mary filed a suit claiming Hackett had improperly treated Shannon by administering narcotics and then releasing her. 
The suit included two signed affidavits from Oak Beach residents, one who received an injected steroid by Hackett and one who swore that Hackett provided prescriptions for residents. And I think that this was just to show that it wouldn't be that strange for Hackett to have administered narcotics to people within the vicinity. You know, we also talked about how like he'd said that he'd reattached a finger, which sounds Mm -hmm. like a lot to us, but was actually, you know, like he was a medical guy in the vicinity yeah yeah it's not it's not a it's, huge that's deal. not crazy to think yeah. that he could do it so Hackett confirmed these treatments in the affidavits but he did continue to refuse having treated Shannon a lot of the lawsuit wound up getting tossed by the state supreme court justice Daniel Martin he dismissed the wrongful death count as well as a couple of other claims such as Hackett intentionally causing pain and suffering which was boistered by the fact that Mary had waited past the one-year statute of limitations on such claims. There is still an open case for Mary's claims that Hackett misled Shannon into thinking he would care for her at this apparent wayward home in his Oak Beach residence as well as that his medical malpractice led to her eventual death. I found an article from I'm not exactly sure what the website is. We're going to include it um, in our website, but it gave kind of like parts of the official rulings from some of this open case and then also gave some background information. And I found a quote that says that um, these are, quote, primary survival claims alleging medical malpractice, negligence, gross negligence, and breach of fiduciary duty and fraudulent inducement. Obviously, I'm not a lawyer as much as my dad would like me to be so that I can take over his practice. Hi, dad. I know you're listening. I love you. (laughs) So I can't give an educated breakdown on the case that's currently open. But what I can do is present to our listeners as much information as I can gather and try to just give you guys a whole picture of what we know about Dr. Hackett. Personally, I don't think that Hackett murdered Shannon. Mm -hmm. Um, To me, It also just doesn't seem like he's 100% honest. But at the same time, I think that the big problem that we have with Hackett is that like he tells stories. Mm -hmm. And one of the stories that he's told is that he ran a home for wayward girls and he let Shannon in and he administered medication to her. And then he passed her on to her driver and figured like, well, she's out of my pans. I Mm -hmm. hope Mm -hmm. she's okay. Just calling to check in on her. Mm -hmm. If he didn't do any of that and he gets called out for it, what's he going to do? You yeah. know, he's going to say like, I didn't say any of that because that's a lot easier to do than say like, well, I make up things to sound mm-hmm. more self-important mm-hmm. to give these big grandiose visions of myself. And like, you're right. I didn't do those things. I'm really sorry that I lied about that. Like, yeah, that's never going to happen. There's a lot of questions around these two individuals who seem to like have weird, shady, complex lives in this gated community which just like i think seems seems to just invite strangeness yeah yeah it does yeah and i also i want to take a a moment to especially point out what emma had said about cell phone towers did place dr hackett in new jersey and when he was in new jersey making these phone calls he later claimed that he hadn't been there despite again the fact that cell phone evidence did place him there so even in a best case scenario this guy is just straight up lying about things. Yeah. Yeah. So a few closing thoughts on Hackett. His background in law enforcement. Quotes. Oh, <laughs> We're putting those in right. air quotes. We need you guys to know. <laughs> yeah. And positions of power. They definitely tied to some theories about the profile of Lisk. Someone that's able to fly under the radar due to being in a position of power. That combined with his status and relationship with the community also give him the opportunity to manipulate them, which would be very helpful if you have a secret life that you're trying to keep covered up, right? In addition to that, he's obviously very confident, considerably cocky, 
And does this maybe suit the profile of Lisk? Do you think that Lisk took risks that would be comparable to the behavior of a cocky narcissist such as Hackett? And I think we needed to decide, similar to what you were saying, Sarah, is Hackett just a narcissist drunk on power who's trying to insert himself into the spotlight of the Lisk murders, or is he a legitimate suspect? Yeah, I, I I think those are all really great points and questions, Emma. I think it's really important to note a couple of things. The first is, you know, a lot of people who are listening probably know about the Golden State Killer case and how Joseph D'Angelo, you know, the profile of the Golden State Killer slash Eurons was that this was someone who must have been in a position of power or was able to fly under the radar in a way that he could walk through a neighborhood that was pretty upper middle class and not draw any suspicion to himself. Nobody would notice it. Nobody exactly. would notice it. So something that I think we need to point out about um, the area of Suffolk County. So it's a county that is predominantly white. It has a, a pretty big range of middle class. Um, and so we need to think about Lisk as being someone who can fit in there. And yeah. also as someone, you know, as we know, there are certain aspects of the case whether it be the phone calls, the lack of physical evidence or DNA, as far as we know, um, that lead us to believe that he has a little bit more understanding of how investigations or, or at least forensics work. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's a really good point, Emma, that you brought up. You know, if Hackett does have some sort of background or at least mild understanding of how these things work, maybe, you know, if he was a legitimate suspect, that's a connection to make as well. But yeah, I think that, you know, we're starting to see this pattern of these people sort of popping up, Joseph Brewer, Peter Hackett, who James Burke, who are all like narcissistic personalities. They they seem to really talk highly of themselves. They think highly of themselves. Um, and because of that, they have a tendency to treat women, especially sex workers, in a certain yeah. way. Um, yeah. And so I think it's not crazy to assume that whoever killed these women might have a similar personality as well. Lastly, we're going to cover the sort of strange case of James Bissett. So James Bissett was a wealthy Long Island native. Uh, He was a businessman and owner of a nursery that supplied burlap sacks to the region. So he was found dead in his car at a park in Mattituck the day after Shannon's body was found. So according to a lot of different sources, people really liked him. He was a pillar of the community. He owned a lot of business. He was a businessman, an owner. He, you know, all these things. And he seemed pretty positive. So I think it was a it was a shock that he had been found dead. So James Bissett was a prominent businessman. He was also a developer in the area. He co-owned the Long Island Aquarium Complex in Riverhead, the Hyatt Place East End Hotel, and owned Bissett Nursery, one of the largest wholesale horticultural distribution centers in the tri-state area, according to their website. That's a pretty huge deal, right? So, you know, it's not just a nursery. This isn't a small hometown thing. Yeah. This is not a space where you can just go in and buy... Um, you know, a couple of planters and, and these things and that, their minimum order is a thousand dollars. When oh, they wow. sell oh mm-hmm, wow, okay. When they sell burlap sacks, it is not one or two. It's it's wholesale level. 
Um, so that's something to think about. And, uh, you know, James Bissett actually assumed direction of the nursery in 1996. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that, that it does sort of fit the time of some of the earlier murders. So Bissett was found in his car at Veterans Memorial Park on Peconic Bay Boulevard in Mattatuck. He was found by a patrolman doing, you know, a regular patrol around 6 p.m. on December 14th, 2011. Though no foul play was suspected, the investigation concluded that Bissett had taken his own life. So you guys might be thinking, okay, are the burlap bags the only connection here? He did operate a business that was one of the largest wholesale retailers of burlap sacks in the region. But he also was friends with James Burke. What? Oh, what? Okay. Yeah. So, you know, there's not a crazy amount of information out there, but we do know that he knew James Burke. They ran in similar circles, which means that likely he also ran in the same circles that frequented sex workers. So I think like leading on from what you were saying, Sydney, is that the, of course the huge standouts here are his connection to Burlap and also the timeline of his suicide after Shannon's body being found and your note about how he also was friends with Burke mm-hmm. or Bag of Dicks as we like to call him. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's important to note that like similar to some of the other suspects is his community status may have provided a convenient disguise if he was hiding something mm-hmm. like some murderous behavior. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like we don't know enough about him to draw too many conclusions. Mm-hmm. But I feel like regardless, with so many shady characters here, do you think you could put more fire behind the idea that this was multiple killers? And then it also makes you think, what if they were working together? Hey guys, you ready for some spooky shit? Hey guys. <laughs> I, I love how we like reintroduce ourselves or like say hello again. It's us that you were just listening to. <laughs> so for this week's episode, we're really excited to announce that we're going to be reading some spooky shit that got sent to us. We have Yay! a fan submission and we're so excited about it in case you can't tell by how high my voice is. <laughs> so this week we have a submission from Gina and Gina has a really spooky story for us. So, this happened when I was 12 years old. My best friend at the time had parents who encouraged her to learn more about all that is spooky, and I was a free-range kid. In any case, we had gotten our hands on a Ouija board. Sign number one that things are going to go bad. (laughs) One night, my parents were out country western dancing. Lame. I know. It was the 90s. (laughs) (laughs) My oldest brother was away at a friend's house across town, and my older brother, my bestie, and I decided to have a seance with the Ouija board. We turned all the lights out in the house, sat in the kitchen table, and lit one candle. The Ouija board was in the center of the table, and we all had our hands on the planchette. I don't remember exactly who or what we were trying to contact, but we were maybe 10 minutes into it, and all of a sudden, we hear three loud bangs coming from somewhere near the back of the house. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) 
guys, because so just intersect for a second, isn't three meant to be? Oh, we're going to cover it. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Sorry, oh, don't worry. <laughs> we all jumped and turned on the lights and were basically freaking out. I lived in that house my entire life up until then, and I had never heard anything even remotely close to what we heard that night. The only way I can describe it is that it was like a cop knock, very loud and very deliberate. We started thinking someone was playing a joke, but even if someone had somehow snuck into our backyard, the only person who would do that was my oldest brother, and he was at a friend's house clear across town with no car. We lived in a semi-rural area. There was a huge canyon behind our house and a lot of space between homes, so it's not like the backyard was easily accessible. To this day, I have no idea what it was that night, but as an adult, it has always intrigued me that it was three bangs. It's interesting to note that according to some Christian beliefs, three bangs is sometimes believed to be mocking the Holy Trinity. There's yes. lots of stuff on Google regarding three knocks. Anywho, that's my spooky story. I'm horrible at storytelling. No, you're not. So I hope it made sense. Oh, Thank you for all great. that you do. Yeah, Emma, you were going to say the, I think it's generally that, um, what what is believed in uh christianity is christianity is that three whether it's bangs knocks growls scratches, anything uh-huh. scratches, scratches as well. it's believed to be mm-hmm. a mockery of the holy trinity which is actually why 3 a.m mm-hmm. is considered the devil's hour because it's mm-hmm. a mockery of the holy trinity mm-hmm. which is why mm-hmm. i don't like to go to bed mm-hmm. at 3 a.m because i'm yeah. insanely paranoid mm-hmm. and the exorcist has stayed with mm-hmm. me my entire life I also hope that you said goodbye and closed that um, session up because if you don't say goodbye, apparently that these spirits or demons stay. can stay around yeah. and then you get haunted. That's how you get haunted. <laughs> Gina, if if anything spooky happened afterwards, please give us a follow-up. We would oh, love to yes. know if this demon thing just like chilled around your house for a while or if yeah. hopefully, fingers crossed, this was the last you a heard of it thing. yeah 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 give us more please <laughs> and also like great storytelling i got chills That's i felt actually it. terrifying yeah three knocks man oh mm-hmm. man <laughs> too much too much um okay well i guess is that it for today Excellent. I think, I think it could be. Yeah. <laughs> hey guys, so just remember please rate, review, subscribe, um, tell your friends about our podcast, send us an email. Like yeah. Us, like, you know, hit us up on Reddit, um, on any type of social media. We want to hear Slide from you. Slide into our DMs. You yeah. can't see oh, it, but yeah. I raised my eyebrows when I did Her that. Her eyebrows are going crazy. <laughs> they are up and down and all over the place. Um yeah, we love hearing from you guys. It really truly makes our day. Email us, DM us if you have our phone number, text us. Yeah. Don't, don't uh, show up at our doorstep though. That's like no, just no, one that's too, a no. too far. That that's a that's a hard no from me, dog. Um <laughs> I will take that as a personal offense. I don't like people. So <laughs> Um, All right, cool. I guess uh, that's it for today. This is Ossuary, over and out.